everyone, it's Leslie Ludi, host of the Set Apart Girl podcast, Biblical Encouragement for Women of All Ages. Today we're going to explore part two of that question that we started in the last episode, is singleness really a gift? And that seems to be a question on a lot of single women's mind today. So whether you are single or know someone who is maybe struggling with discontentment or dissatisfaction in that single season of life, I hope this message will be an encouragement to you. There is really a lie that is floating around in Christian circles, really tempting us to believe that singleness is something that we have the right to be discontent about. And the lie goes something like this. Singleness isn't really a gift. God never intended us to accept it as a gift. Most of us are miserable being single. We might as well admit it. Singleness can't be a gift from God because it's not fun. And of course, he wants us to be happy. Now, maybe you've heard that lie in the form of a people's words or even just in your own mind. The enemy may be whispering that in your ear and maybe there's that temptation to listen to it and say, that's right. I have the right to be frustrated and discontent with my singleness. But the Bible has a different perspective and that's what I want to dive into in this episode. Now, I'm not making up this lie. I've read a lot of books on Christian singleness, so if this doesn't sound familiar to you, I'll give you a little quote from one of the books that was written for single women a number of years ago that takes that position of of accepting discontentment. And she writes, if singleness is a gift, then why does it make us feel so miserable so often? Does God really want his children to embrace a gift they resent so much? I realized I was being tricked into denying my very self by pretending to be happy with single life. Now, that really brings us to the question of self-denial versus self-fulfillment. When we approach these areas of our lives, whether it's singleness or marriage or any other key area of life, from the perspective of self-fulfillment, then we're going to be evaluating everything on how it makes us feel and if it makes us happy. And we take this idea that God only wants us to be happy. He never wants us to be uncomfortable. So therefore, we should reject anything that doesn't bring us all of this amazing happiness. And in reality, there are so many examples in scripture of self-denial as being one of the things God calls us to as we take up our cross and follow him. And that doesn't always mean a happy, comfortable life. Self-denial does lead to the ultimate fulfillment and joy, but it doesn't always come with the immediate gratification of getting everything that we want right when we want. And this author that I quoted earlier claims that she was, quote, being tricked into denying her very self. I want to think about that line for a minute because Christ said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's in Matthew 16, 24. Was Christ trying to trick us when he told us to deny ourselves? Or was he inviting us to follow in his steps and experience the ultimate fulfillment? The way of the cross is narrow. It can be painful. It can be uncomfortable. It's definitely sacrificial. It does not always lead to just an an immediate temporary gratification, but it leads to the ultimate joy and fulfillment. As we talked about before, Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Now, when we use our own happiness as a gauge for what we will or won't accept from God, we will usually end up in either rebellion or resentment towards him. I remember reading Corey Ten Boom's book, Tramp for the Lord, a chapter where she describes visiting a woman missionary who was overseas and had been single for her entire life, and she was middle-aged, and she'd become very bitter and resentful towards God for not bringing a husband into her life. And Corey counsels her in the book 
saying that when you have learned to deny yourself and when you have died and your life is hid with Christ, then you actually have the secret to being content with or without a husband secure in Christ alone. And of course, Corrie ten Boom was single all throughout her life, and she had an amazing ministry and was incredibly joy-filled and content in her relationship with Christ. She encouraged this woman missionary to lay down that resentment and learn how to deny herself and find that acceptance that comes with saying, Lord, you are my fulfillment. Even if I don't always get everything that I want, I will accept the path that you've set before me. And that's what leads to tremendous joy and happiness in the long run. Elizabeth Elliot also speaks directly to this issue in her book, Passion and Purity. And she writes, I'm afraid the snake has been talking to many of us. He's been sneaking up and whispering, God is stingy. He dangles that beautiful fruit called marriage before your eyes and won't let you have it. He refuses you the only thing you need for deep personal growth, the one thing in all the world that would solve all your problems and make you really happy. Now, I think that is so well said because whether it's singleness or any other area in life, we, we so often fall for that lie. And it is a lie directly from the enemy saying, if you could only have this, that would solve all of your problems and make you really happy. And of course, that only leads towards rebellion and resentment towards God, as opposed to accepting what God has given us and saying, Lord, teach me contentment right here, right now. You are truly everything that I need for happiness. Think about the way that Eve responded to the lie of the serpent. She felt that she knew better than God. She felt that if she could just have that one fruit that God had asked her not to eat, she would finally be happy and have everything she needed in life. She chose to put her own happiness above God's desires, and she took matters into her own hands. The results of her decision to put her own happiness first were disastrous. So often, American Christianity tells us that it's okay to exalt our emotions and our desires above the call of Christ to deny ourselves, to lay our dreams and hopes on the altar and take up our cross and follow him. I mean, how could a loving God expect us to embrace something that makes us resentful and miserable? Why would God want us to surrender our desire to be married when clearly it's a good desire? And it's only natural that we remain impatient and discontent until we're finally married because marriage is what God wants for most of us. He wants us to be happy and marriage is the only way to be happy, according to this view. This is the mentality of American Christianity, but it is actually not at all biblical. When we are single, that message of hurry up and get married already, that will finally solve your problems and make you happy. That message caters to what we want in our fleshly, selfish side. It's all about following the whims and the desires of our heart. If our heart says we're lonely and need to get married to solve our loneliness, then that has to be what God wants for us because he's a God of love. But think about this. The very same loving God asked his only son to embrace the greatest suffering this world has ever known. Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. It was not easy or comfortable for Jesus to give up his life. It was not delightful and fun and pleasant and comfortable. Taking up his cross caused Jesus more pain and misery than anyone has ever known or ever imagined. It was so difficult that the night before it happened, he wept exceedingly, sweat drops of blood, and cried out to his father, is there any 
other way. What if Jesus had simply listened to his heart that night in the Garden of Gethsemane? What if he had taken this message that is floating around out there today and yielded to what his emotions and his desires were telling him? What if he had said, surely God does not want me to embrace something that makes me feel miserable. Surely I shouldn't see this as an opportunity from my father. Death is a curse. It's shameful and it's painful. Why would I surrender to something that doesn't make me feel happy? Do you see the parallel here? We can never profane the sacred sacrifice of our King by seeking the benefits of Christ without the cross. Just as Jesus gave up his life, we are called to give up ours. It doesn't actually matter what we think is going to make us happy or what we think is going to make us feel good. The way is narrow and it's a rocky road that often causes pain and requires sacrifice, but this is the road that Jesus walked and it is our great privilege and joy to follow in his steps. Now, as we've been talking about on the other side of sacrifice and surrender, there is always joy and it's true lasting joy. Because as we talked about in the last episode, if you put your joy and happiness in a human relationship or any set of circumstances, it's only a temporary joy and you'll eventually become disillusioned. Only Christ can give us that lasting joy at the soul level that will never fade away. Jesus obtained the reward of his suffering after he had conquered sin and death and sat down on the right hand of the Father. And that is his pattern, first suffering, then reward. It says in 1 Peter 5.10, May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And Paul reminds us, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. When we lay everything on the altar, every desire that we may have, every hope and every dream, no matter how painful the process is, we can be confident that there are unspeakable treasures of joy awaiting us on the other side of that suffering. Modern messages that tell us to shed that, quote, stigma of singleness tell us that embracing singleness as a gift only causes resentment and misery. But no sacrifice that we ever embrace in obedience to Christ ends in misery or death or resentment. That wasn't Jesus' story, and it won't be our story when we follow in his steps. God specializes in happily ever after. It will look different for each of us, but the end of a story that God writes is always victory and joy. The majority of Christian single women today are surrounded by messages that encourage them to follow their hearts, take matters into their own hands, and find themselves a husband as quickly as possible. If that is your situation, I would encourage you to tune out those voices and lean upon the strength of God to walk a different path, the narrow way of the cross. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The cross did seem like too much to bear, but he received everything he needed by running into the arms of his father and crying out for supernatural strength. And he can do the same for you if you simply ask him. Let's look at another challenging issue when it comes to modern day singleness, the difference between honesty and sin. Because another misconception that's being promoted under the banner of, quote, just be honest Christianity is the message that it's literally impossible to be happy or content in your singleness unless you are one of those few called to lifelong biblical celibacy. Those who hold this view say that anyone claiming to be content in their singleness is just pretending. 
One book says it this way, when single women tell me how wonderfully happy they are being single, I'm left thinking that it doesn't ring true. We must be honest with ourselves and each other if things are ever going to change. Now, this author goes on to tell single women that should they should be honest enough to finally stand up and admit that they are angry and frustrated about not being married. This disturbing trend in modern Christianity says it's more spiritual to, quote, just be honest with our frustrations, saying that it would be great if we only had the guts to stand up and publicly admit we are fed up with being single and angry about our situation in life. But I believe that biblically, this kind of honesty is not actually honesty. It's nothing more than a slap in God's face. It's a flaunting of the flesh, that whining, selfish, demanding side of us that is constantly warring against God's spirit. No matter what our situation in life is, we should not go around being angry about it. Rather, God tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And in Philippians 2.14, he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. So if we're feeling angry, unhappy, miserable, frustrated, or resentful about any situation in life, whether that's singleness or some other issue, we shouldn't just admit it and call it honesty. We need to admit it and call it what it is, sin. We need to ask God to forgive us and cleanse us by the power of his blood, and we should lean upon his grace to turn and walk another way joyfully embracing whatever path that God has placed us on, just like Jesus who endured the cross. This is not over-spiritualizing singleness. This is applying the gospel to singleness. And when we have this complaining attitude, marriage does not magically solve all our problems and take away our anger and frustration. If we're not willing to be joyfully content where God has us right now, we are not going to be joyfully content in marriage or in any other stage in life. There will always be that something more that we feel we need in order to be really happy. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians that singleness presents an incredible opportunity. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And I say this for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. So then he who marries does well, but he who does not marry does better. Now, if you read the entire passage, you'll see that Paul goes out of his way to make it clear that those who marry are not sinning. But he also goes out of his way to say that singleness, whether it's for a season or a lifetime, is a wonderful chance to serve the Lord without distraction. And he even goes as far as to say that a woman who loses her husband would be happier if she remains single than if she gets married again. As Paul clearly points out, he doesn't prescribe this path in order to put a leash on us or make us miserable, but for our benefit. There are unspeakable joys and treasures in a season or a lifetime of singleness that we miss out on when we look to marriage as our source of happiness. Paul is so content and fulfilled in his single life with Christ that he actually wishes all men were as himself. Some of the modern voices that we've been talking about disagree that Paul is saying singleness is a good thing. They contend that Paul was speaking specifically to people in that particular time period 
And that is advice stemmed from the fact that they were in the middle of a great crisis of famine, which actually can't be biblically proven, but that's just a theory. I believe it's dangerous to use the time period argument toward any scripture because pretty soon the entire Bible can be downplayed because it was, quote, written for a different time. It's safer to build upon the words of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And other modern voices may argue that Paul himself admitted that he spoke these things by permission and not by command. But biblically, I don't feel that we should take this portion of scripture less seriously because of that one sentence. This verse is still part of the Bible. But even if you do take the position that these verses are just Paul's personal opinion and not the inspired word of God, think about this. Wouldn't you rather take the personal advice of the Apostle Paul over any modern day Christian's thoughts on the subject? The bottom line is this. Singleness is a gift. It's an opportunity and it's a blessing and it should be treated as such. That doesn't mean we should swear off marriage or that marriage does not have amazing value or that God hasn't called most of us to be married. It doesn't mean that the desire to be married is wrong or that we should stop praying that God would bring a spouse into our life in his own time in his own way. But it does mean that in our single years, we should stop complaining about singleness and that we should allow God to reveal his amazing purposes for this season of our lives. Often he'll delay bringing marriage into your life until you've learned to find that perfect contentment in him. It's the same with ministry opportunities, children, and any other dreams and desires that he's placed in our hearts. The desires themselves may be good and God-given, but keeping a death grip on them is not. And even though I've been married for over 20 years, this is a lesson that I'm constantly having to learn. So if you have been griping and complaining, even just inwardly, about being single, or about any other circumstance in your life, ask God to forgive you. Ask him to enable you by the power of his grace to be truly thankful for this gift of singleness or the gift of another difficult circumstance you may be walking through and to clearly see his divine purpose for this season of your life. Entrust your desire for marriage to him. There is no safer place for your hopes and dreams than in the loving hands of your faithful father. When he holds the pen, he can write a beautiful story for you, both in your single years and if he so ordained in your earthly love story. And remember, this process does not just apply to singleness. As I've said, I'm constantly being convicted of areas that I've inwardly been complaining about, wallowing in discontentment until such and such finally happens. Paul says that when we learn to do all things without complaining, we will become blameless and pure in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That is no small command and no small promise. I want to finish with just a final practical point if you're in your single years. One of the little known keys to contentment, whether you're single or in any other difficult time in your life where you're struggling with discontentment, One of the powerful secrets to learning contentment, no matter what you're walking through, is to take your eyes off yourself and turn outward. I want to finish with two powerful statements from single women who have learned to be content and joyful during their single years. Both of them have learned that joy of choosing self-denial over self-fulfillment. One is a 28-year-old who works overseas with orphans and she's single, and this is what she wrote. 
One of the keys to being fulfilled and content is to be others-centered. When you live a poured-out life, you realize that you aren't the only one struggling or going through a hard time or waiting on the promises of God to be fulfilled in your life. It's hard for me to think about myself when there's a family living in a mud hut that has no food to eat and no bed to sleep in. It's hard for me to think about my dreams when I'm comforting a child who has just lost her mother to AIDS. It's hard for me to think about my desires when I live with 75 orphans who know the pain of rejection and abandonment. Very powerful statement. And here's another quote from a 32-year-old single woman who said this, Learning to be other-centered is a massive cure for any type of ailment, love sickness, single sickness, depression, or anything else. For it is when we take our eyes off our own inadequacies and losses that we are truly able to be used for others. And as we are used by God to help others, our pain goes away. You can't focus on two things at once. So if you are single and struggling with discontentment, remember those keys to find contentment in Christ, to choose that path of self-denial over self-fulfillment, which really leads to the ultimate joy, and to turn outward. When you take your eyes off self, it's amazing how much joy can flood into your life. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. If you would like to go deeper into what it means to live a Christ-centered life, whether you're single or married, and how to lay the foundation for a God-written love story, I invite you to join us for our Secrets to an Amazing Love Story online course, which is available for a limited time at braveheartedchristian.com. It includes hours and hours of video teaching from Eric and myself and loads of other resources. It's appropriate for every age. It's great for groups or individual study. And again, it's only available for a limited time. So go to braveheartedchristian.com to learn more. Have a blessed and Christ-centered week.